This is the story of God's great love for you. It's not a collection of individual stories from the past. It's one big story that God put together for us to grasp. In the beginning, God created a world filled with beauty and wonder. He placed us at the center of the story. But then sin entered the world and everything changed. We were separated from God. It doesn't end there. From the perfect beginning to the brokenness of sin and then the redemption through Jesus. God's story continues. It's a story of restoration. It's filled with hope, purpose, and a future. It's woven through every word, every page, and every moment of your life. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you out today. Worship the Lord together. And uh, this is the last message in our whole big series where we've been talking about trying to grasp God's big story. We're finishing it out today. And just to kind of remind you where we've been, we started out in season one talking about the beginning and how in the beginning everything was and it was so good. And then we stayed in Genesis and we discovered that there was a crisis in season two and all that was good was wrecked and ruined by sin. It wrecked and ruined nature, the universe itself, and most importantly, our souls. Then we went into the book of Romans to talk about the middle of the story in our season on redemption and how God has reconciled us back into relationship with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. We can know the forgiveness of sins. We can have the hope of eternal life. In this last season, we've been talking about restoration and just the joy of knowing that we can come back into uh, not only a right relationship with God, but a future with God. And so we've been looking at the book of Revelation, and we'll take one more look today. So I've asked Pastor Heather to come up and read Revelation chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Revelation 22, <clears throat> verses 1 through 9. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of that city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written on this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words on this scroll. Worship God. 
Be seated. So when it comes to um, prophecy and when it comes to the book of Revelation, it's really challenging to teach on it because it's hard to know sometimes what is symbolic and what is literal, especially when it comes to talking about heaven. Because remember, we, were, we learned last weekend that, that heaven is a place and heaven's going to come and join earth. And this new city that was referred to in Revelation 21 and, and then again in Revelation 22. So it's hard for scholars to figure out what, you know, what do we take as symbolic, what do we take as literal? So uh, one scholar tried a little experiment. He just thought, okay, what if we take everything literally from Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Revelation about, about what the new city is going to be like? How are we all going to fit into it? How big would it be? He said, if you place that city in, let's say, the United States, for instance, in the continental United States, according to what we read in the scriptures, it would, it would extend from the borders of Canada to the borders of Mexico and about the Appalachian Mountains all the way to the coast of California. It would rise up about 1,400 miles in the air like a pyramid at the very top height. It would have probably around 600,000 stories. The ground floor itself would take up 200 million square miles. That's like 40 sometimes bigger than England, 10 times bigger than France, 10 times bigger than Germany. And there would be enough room for everybody to have actually a, a lot of room to themselves. But to get kind of caught up in that, and I wonder, well, that sounds weird, or how could that be, or whatever, is to miss the point. And the point is that what, what is in store for us in the future is bigger and better and greater than anything we can imagine, and there really aren't any human words to properly explain it and describe it. But there's enough there that that should excite us. And to get caught up in all that is to also miss something really important. Because when we're given this idea of what is to come, it's not meant to, you know, turn us all into cruise boat passengers that are kind of just waiting in the terminal for the ship to show up so we can get on board and go on our way. We're given a vision of the, of the future to understand how God, wants to live, how God wants us to live now. Let me explain what I mean by that. When Augustine, St. Augustine, read the Bible, <clears throat> he said there are two kinds of cities in the Bible. He says there's the city of men, or if you want to, you can call it the city of humanity. And then he said there's the city of God. Now, what's the difference? Well, let's start out by talking about the, the city of humanity, the city of men. The city of men is probably best described and typified in the book of Genesis and the 11th chapter after the flood. If you remember, the people gathered together on the plains of Shinar, it says. And... They said, you know, let's, let's build a city for ourselves. And then, and then they had a motto. And the motto is found over in verse 11. It says in that passage, then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. It's kind of like this, this ziggurat that they were going to build up. And it's almost like a fist in God's face. Because look what they say. And a tower, no, back Back to Genesis, and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Okay, so that's like the big 
motto. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So what does that mean when they say, let us make a name for ourselves? In essence, what they're saying is, you know what? God, we don't need you. We can, we can, we can take care of ourselves. We can create our own identity. We can create our own significance. We can have our own value. We don't need you to govern us. We don't need, we don't need your word. We don't need your morals. We don't need your values. <clears throat> we, in essence, can be our own God. And, of course, that takes us back to the original sin, right? In Genesis chapter 3, when Satan said to the woman and to the man standing right next to her, when you eat that fruit, when you disobey God, you will become just like God. And that penchant, that desire in our lives has just never left. Even as Christians, those of us who are followers of Christ, we, we know that feeling inside of us. We know that bent in us to kind of want to be our, our own God. And that, that whole attitude has, has stayed with us this very day. And the problem is, you, you look at, at human history and you realize that when people try to play God, when cultures and cities and villages and towns and wherever you have a concentration of humanity, when they get together and they try to do it their way, right, it always leads to chaos. It always leads to ruin. It leads to violence, injustice, immorality, and, and to all kinds of troubles. Like we cannot, we just can't handle it. And, you know, and we see it in our own country. You know, democracy is short run. Democracy cannot last very long because of human corruption. Eventually, people want to reach in and take control and do it their way. And so every human attempt to be a city, every human attempt to live without God just leads to misery. And we've seen it all throughout history. And as a follower of Christ, as one who's been brought back into right relationship with God, we should know that probably better than anybody else, right? I mean, in one way, we're some of the biggest pessimists in the world because we look at the world the way it's going, and if the world's going to continue to go its way, we, we, don't have, we have no doubt it's going to end very badly. And so what that does sometimes is it makes you mad at the world. Makes you mad at the city of humanity. I'll, I'll fess up to that. Especially these last, you know, dozen years or so. I see what's happening in our world. I see what's happening in our country. I see what's happening in our society. And it makes me mad. Because I sit there and I go, I don't, I'm not insane. Why do I want to go down the path of insanity right now? Why do I want to do things that I know don't work, that are going to end in failure? And I don't like the effect that it has on my kids. And as a grandparent, I don't like the effect it's going to have on my grandparent. I don't like the effect it's going to have on my future. I don't like what it's doing to my life. It's really easy to get ticked off with the world, isn't it? I mean, to look at other human beings, just, just this past week I was uh, over by um, Ian Prairie Mall and was running an errand. And uh, there was a four-way stop, and uh, I was behind this. I was behind this lady, at, and then there was another uh, car over here, and it was this guy's turn. Or this actually it was a woman in the driver's seat over here. It was her turn to go, and this woman was it was an elderly woman, and she wasn't really paying attention. So as this one went, she started to go, and they almost hit each other. 
And then she, you know, and obviously she hit the brakes and this car kept going. And I looked and there's this old dude in the car on the passenger side. And he gives this poor woman a terrible gesture. And I just, as they drove slowly, and I, and I, I just watched that and I just got so disgusted. I just thought, what? Okay, so she made a, a mistake. Is that what we've come down to now? As civilized human beings, we're that uptight, that upset, and we're going to treat each other that way. And it, it just makes you mad at the world. Am I the only one that gets mad at the world? <laughs> but isn't it interesting that God loves this world that we get mad at? That God loves the city of humanity? He doesn't love the violence, he doesn't love the injustice, he doesn't love the racism, he doesn't love all the things that are wrong with it. But he looks at this world, he looks at our cities, and when I say city, I'm talking about everything from, you know, New York City uh, down to a little village in the Himalayas someplace, wherever there's a concentration of human beings, however few, however many. God looks at it, and, and God loves it. Why? Because God sees people, and people are made in his image, and he's willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And he keeps waiting and giving off opportunity after opportunity to come back to him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are ambassadors of God. And, and he literally says we are calling people back to God. Jonah saw a city called Nineveh. And he hated that city. Hated the people in that city. The Ninevites, the Assyrians. They were a, a violent, evil, immoral people. And God told him, I want you to go to that city and I want you to tell them that judgment is coming because they're so sinful. And, Nineveh, and uh, Jonah runs the opposite way. He does not want to go. And then God causes a great fish to convince him he should go. And he shows up and he preaches judgment. And the thing that happened is the thing he didn't want to happen. The people actually repented. And it made him mad. It would be like you and me being upset because there's been a revival in Eden Prairie or Hopkins or St. Louis Park or Minnetonka or Minneapolis or wherever you live. And just upset that our, there are so many people coming now to church, worshiping God, and they're sitting in my spot. <laughs> Can't imagine that ever happening, to you? And, and listen to what God says to him in Genesis chapter, uh, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. God says this. God says to him in the last chapter, the last verse says, But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness. Not to mention all the animals, which I think is fascinating. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? That tells you something about the heart of God, doesn't it? Yeah, I see Las Vegas. Yeah, I see Minneapolis, I see New York, I see Eden Prairie, I see Chanhassen, Chaska, I mean, whatever city you're from. I see everything that's wrong. I see all the immorality, I see all the, the evil, I see all the injustice, I see it all. But shouldn't I feel sorry for those lost people? And, boy, that's challenging to me. Am I willing to feel sorry for all the lost people that are around you and me? So the question becomes, how do, we, how do we reach them? Well, like I said, Augustine, when he read the Bible, saw, saw this city of men. We just described this, but he also saw the city of God. 
And not just the city of God that is to come, but look what he says in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is speaking. He says to his followers, including all of us, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Now finish it out loud with me. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Do you hear what Jesus just said, called you and me? <clears throat> he calls us a city. He doesn't say you'll be a future city or a future city is coming. He says you, you people, you my followers in every generation, in every age, you are a city. Present tense. Now for the people living back then when Jesus said that, you're like a city set on a hill, they knew what he meant. Because on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, there is the remains of what was once a city. It was called Hippos. It was one of the Decapolis Greek cities. It's called Hippos because the mountain, and you can still see the mountain today, is shaped like a horse's head. So imagine the, the white stone there and the sun shining down on it. it, was, it you couldn't miss it. It almost made you blind. And at night with the torches lighting it up, it all it stood out. Jesus says, that's what I want you to be. My church, my followers, individually, collectively, I want you to be, listen, an alternate city to the city of humanity. Paul says this about us in Philippians 3.20. He says, but we are citizens of heaven <clears throat> where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. Now, notice what Paul's saying here. He says, yes, Christ is going to return, but he doesn't say when Jesus returns finally, we're all going to immigrate and become citizens of heaven. Doesn't say that at all. He says, right now, we're already citizens of heaven. So in essence, what the Bible is teaching us is this, that we are God's alternate city now. We are a taste of what is to come now. And we're to behave and take up our place as not citizens of the United States, but citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm fine if you're a citizen of the United States. Don't get me wrong. But... My primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. I'm to behave like a citizen of God's kingdom. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? Isn't that beautiful? That's who we're supposed to be. That's how, that's how we're supposed to change the world. We have to be an alternate city so that people living in the city of humanity who are also getting sick and tired of it and are, be very, and are very pessimistic about the future look at us and we're like standing out. We're glowing in the dark, so to speak. And they go, wow, I want to belong to that city I want to be a citizen there because it's a taste of heaven. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the local church in the United States today, this is rhetorical, do you think the local church in the United States today is truly a taste of heaven to come? I think in these last several years, we've been a bitter taste in people's mouth because we've been as nasty as the world in our behaviors and our attitudes and our actions and our outlook. We need to repent of that. We need to get back to being who God called us to be and so wants us to be in order that the world might be changed. 
So the question becomes this. How do you do that? How do we become this alternate city? How do we present a, a beauty and a picture causes the people who are just so discouraged by what the world is like? How do we, how do we attract them? There's a couple warnings here. and Here's the first one. You've got to resist the exhaustion that's always associated with the city of humanity. You say, what do you mean by exhaustion? Well, if you go back to the motto of the city of humanity, let us make a name for ourselves, it's exhausting when you try to make a name for yourself. It's exhausting. It's exhausting when you're trying to create your own identity and live by, you know, your own wit and wisdom and strength. I mean, it's competitive, it means, you know, getting serious about your career and working your career to arrive someplace on the, you know, on the ladder where you feel like you've finally arrived and people tell you that you've arrived. It means getting into the right school. It means being the best performer. It means, you know, uh, being liked and, and, and known by others. And everything the world says we have to be in order to be significant, in order to have an identity. And have you ever noticed that the world moves the line every time you think you've gotten there? It's like, okay, I finally arrived. And it says, no, you haven't really need to do this as well. And so we're, you know, it's exhausting. It, it just breeds stress. It breeds anxiety. It wears us out. It's depressing. It's discouraging. That kind of describes our world today, isn't it? People are exhausted. People are absolutely exhausted trying to be what the world says you have to be in order to be something. Or someone. And listen, you and I shouldn't be exhausted by that. Remember the words of Jesus? I think it's in Matthew 11. He said, Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you stress. <laughs> Remember that verse? What does he say? Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. How many of us, in all honesty, I include myself, can say, that generally speaking, we have our moments, but generally speaking, we're at rest. We're not. Do you know why? Because we get caught up in the exhaustion of the city. We forget whose we are and who we are. And let me remind you in case you have forgotten. John chapter 1, verse 12. Jesus said, but to all who believed in him, or excuse me, John says, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, referring to Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. That's who you are. You're a child of God. Or listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 6. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. How can I be holy without fault in his eyes? Because he sees me through the lens of his son, Jesus. Verse 5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for our glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Do you realize that as a child of God, that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you and to me? We're co-heirs with Christ. I mean, that should kind of put us on the edge of our seats with excitement. Not cause us to yawn and wonder what's for lunch. But yes, 
See how that relieves you of the exhaustion of this world? Look what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. For you are a chosen people. You are chosen today. It doesn't matter what anybody else says about you or thinks about you or me. We are chosen by God. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. In other words, out of the city of man into the city of God. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you received God's mercy. Isn't that good? That is so good. Do you, do you believe that? Do you own it? Does it rest on you? Do you wear it? Do you rejoice in it? You're a child of God. All right? If that's going to happen, there's a second warning here. And the second warning is you've got to turn away from the idols that the city of humans create. See, in the city of humanity, uh, in the city of men, I, I've got to find my identity, my significance. So what happens is I have all these idols I bow to because whatever you're looking to for your satisfaction, for your sense of significance, for your sense of value and identity, that becomes your idol. And so what does the world bow down to? We have all kinds of idols. We have quite a pantheon of idols. We have the idol, I, idols of materialism that we bow down to. We have the uh, idols of power and success that we bow down to. Uh, we have the idols of pleasure and sensuality that we bow down to. We have the, we have the idols of, of uh, fame and celebrityism. Remember that? It's funny. It's an old show now. Remember that show, American what? Idol. You know, get to the place where people bow down to you, right? It's like, what do I have to be? Uh, social media. We all, we all can be famous on TikTok, Instagram, and all the other stuff. You know, it's like, who likes me? How many likes do I have? I, I got to have some fame here. Or another idol we bow down to these days, nationalism and patriotism. <gasps> but we do. We do. Politicians, political parties, right? Or technology and entertainment. Or self-indulgence, narcissism. Those are all these different idols that are out there that we have a tendency to go to to try to find some significance and meaning in life. But let me tell you about an idol that most of us are unaware of, and I confess to you, I about this idol. It's called consumerism. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, consumerism has this idea that you, you consume, right? And you consume all kinds of things in hopes that those things that you consume a lot of these other idols I mentioned will somehow give you a sense of significance and meaning and value. And, and so we live in a world where there's like a buffet of activities that you can consume. Where we commit idolatry and become consumers as Christians is when we treat God and listen, and his church. And I don't mean the building, I mean Christ's church. The church, you understand, Christ, the church belongs to Christ. It's when I treat God and his church like it's another activity that I can pick or leave, choose or discard. And when the church becomes that in my life, when it's just an activity aligned with all the other activities that you can possibly do, and my goodness, they range from, you know, shopping to hockey to dance to music to Whatever. I mean, there's so many activities out there. When, when God and his church becomes one of those activities, we're bowing down to, we're bowing down to consumerism. And a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians are doing it. And we're losing the next generation because of that. 
because they are becoming even more consumers. And when they grow up, God, his church isn't going to matter much to them. It was just an activity, and maybe I'll show up once in a while. Even though God says, and forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. We've, we've, made, we've reduced the church down to a human institution, and perhaps that's partly our fault as leaders. It is meant to be a living organism because we're part of it. So you say, well, then what are we supposed to do? Well, here's where it gets really positive. We're supposed to focus on bringing the hope and the healing that God has given us to the city of humanity. Let's not wait until Revelation 21 and 22 where there's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more death, no more pain. Right now, we're supposed to bring that kind of healing. We're supposed to give people a taste of the complete healing that is to come. And so the body of Christ should be like a healing community. I've often said it. It's so true. I'm not the originator of this. But, but Christ's church is really like a huge 12-step group. If you think about it. We're all sinners. We are all powerless. And we need a power greater than ourselves, except we know who he is, Jesus Christ, to change our lives. We become addicted to him, and we don't want to miss a meeting with him. Because we need it so desperately and so much in our lives. You know, it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, it says, because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. In other words, I, I need to just make sure there's nothing influencing my mind and, and I'm not defiling my body, but I'm, I'm in a place where, where I, I'm free of all the idols of the world so I can focus my energy on bringing the hope of the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. And how do you do that? Well, that's what we're all about. And uh, I want to close by just reminding you of, it, it, it just starts individually. It starts with each one of us deciding we're going we're to make a difference. Each one of us saying, well, let my light shine. Each one of us starting to look at the world around us and not hate the world around us, but try to love them through the eyes and the love of Christ and bring hope to them because I'm telling you what, there are far more people in the world that are pessimistic than there are optimistic. And so one of the strategies I will oftentimes talk to you about is what we call, is what we call um, Adopt 7. By the way, if this looks like anybody, I apologize. There's no resemblance meant, all right? <laughs> you know, I don't have a degree in art. Um, so we said, you know, let's imagine there's at least seven people around you. One, two, three, four, five, six, uh, maybe that's eight. Uh, seven people around you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay? Because I don't want anybody emailing me later on because the only thing you got out of this message is I counted wrong. All right? So, uh, let's say you have seven people around you who aren't believers. Could be a coworker, a family member, somebody rides a bus to you, somebody at your favorite coffee shop. Could be your neighbor. I mean, any number of people. I hope you have at least seven people God's placed around your life who, don't, who possibly don't know him. How do you eat an elephant? You know the saying, right? One piece at a time, one bite at a time. How do we change the world? One person at a time. And that person, by God's providence, has already been placed around your life. 
And we say there are three things we ask you to do. Three simple things that, that Christ asks you to do. Pray for them. Serve them in some way. And when the opportunity opens up, share Christ with them. Sometimes it'll happen quickly. Sometimes it takes years. But I'm always being active. I'm always showing the love and grace of God. So I want to tell you a story about my wife, Marcia, and then I'm going to have her come up and complete it. Somebody in the last service told me, maybe I should just stop preaching and let her take over. <clears throat> Probably be a good idea. But, uh, it's, you know, we've told you, Marcia, we've shared with you, uh, Marcia's uh, into skydiving, jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. Um, I am not, and I never will be. All right? I would never die, by the way, from a parachute failing. I would die from the heart attack on the way down, so it's not going to go there. But she has about 1,275 jumps under, under canopy. And um, she, you know, she goes out to Baldwin, uh, Wisconsin, where the drop zone is. And it's funny because that is such a crowd that I would never associate my wife with. They're like West Coast surfers, except they do it in the sky. They're all tatted up. Nothing against tattoos. Please don't take that personally if you have one, all right? But uh, they use language that I wouldn't use, she doesn't use. Uh, they drink a little too much. They're kind of a rowdy bunch. They're a rough crowd. And yet, they've, they've adopted my wife into kind of their, their tribe. She's, she, to, you know, and she, they know she's a pastor's wife. And they haven't kicked her out. She, they know that she's a Christian. They know that, you know, when they have so many jumps, every, you know, if you get a certain amount of jumps, you have to buy everybody else a beer. You know what, you know what Marsha brings? Cookies. <laughs> and, and so they, 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 I really think they care deeply about her. She's not, you know, your, your typical jumper. She certainly is not your typical grandmother. In fact, my, my kids, my grandkids call her not your ordinary grandma. So she goes out there all the time, and this is not about Marsha, but if you don't know the story, you're not, you're not going to understand what's going on here. But she goes out there all the time, and she takes very seriously Adopt 7 and prays for that rowdy crowd. And one day, she recently, she had a prayer that I'm going to ask her to come up and share uh, with you of how God works, and this is to remind you how God can work in your life as well. All right. <clears throat> So I was driving to the drop zone, and as I do every time I drive there, I was praying that in some way I could be a witness for Christ while I was there that day. And I was feeling a little discouraged because not much had been happening lately in that realm. Um, and I told God, I said, Lord, I don't want to just go there to jump as much as I enjoy it. I really want to make a difference. I really want to share your love with someone. And I got there that day, and there was a new guy. He, we found out he was from Scotland, and he was a medical doctor. He was in Minneapolis on some business, and he just had a free day and had wanted to come and jump. He was a regular skydiver. He was looking for people to jump with, so we you know, brought him into our group to jump. And, as the day went on, he asked me a question. He said, well, how did you start skydiving? And I love that question because I told him, well, my husband's a pastor, and he thought that if I went on a tandem skydive, it would make a great sermon illustration. <laughs> and, 
It's, it is a great illustration of faith because when you go tandem, you actually put your life in someone else's hands. And this really intrigued him, and he started asking me all these questions like, so what exactly does your husband do? And uh, what's it like being a pastor's wife? And I started realizing, okay, God, are you stirring something here? And I started praying, you know, silently, God, to help me know what to say. Well, shortly after this, he got a text on his phone that the ride that he was depending on to get him from the drop zone back to his hotel had fallen through and he had no way to get back. And he was kind of panicking and he looked at me and he said, is there any way you could drive me and drop me off at my hotel on your way home? And I said, okay. And I thought, okay, God, you are definitely doing something here. And so I called Dale and I told him what was happening. And I, I said, I think God really wants me to share the gospel with this man. And would you please pray? So we got in the car and chatted a little. I learned a little bit about his wife and more about Scotland. But then I said, okay. I was praying, okay, Lord, I'm going to dive in here. And I asked him, what's your religious background? Do you have any? And he said, I'm Jewish. And that's when I told him that on the way there, that I had prayed that God would give me someone to share his love with today. And I believe that person is you. God wants you to know how much he loves you. He sees you. He um, wants you to know him. Can I share with you how God showed us his love through Jesus? And um, we had a 40-minute conversation about God, about Jesus, and how he paid the price for our sins and what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And he had such an open heart. And he wasn't ready to accept Jesus as his savior, but he was so thankful to me for sharing with him. And um, we got to the hotel and he got out and he thanked me again and even invited Dale and I to come to Scotland and stay with him and his wife. But when he closed the door, my heart just filled with a sense of God's presence and a joy that I can't even tell you. And it had nothing to do with me or, or what I said. I, it was all God. I could just see how he had orchestrated every little detail to bring a man from Scotland to this drop zone on a day that I was there to make uh, his other ride fall through so I could spend 40 minutes telling him the story, God's story, and God's love, and um, it was just so exciting to see God at work, and I know that God is working in his life, and, and we keep praying um, that God will bring other people, other circumstances, so he'll come to know Jesus Christ, and my part was so little. All I had to do was pray and, and have open heart and open eyes to see the opportunity 
I served him by dropping him off at his hotel, and I was willing to share the gospel. And I know that he wants to do the same for you, through you. you. So I just, I, when Marcia shared that with me that day and I was praying for her, I just, I wanted you to hear that because, you know, a lot of times from the platform, so to speak, we say all these things, but, you know, do we practice them, right? Or are we just telling you to do it? You know, you know it's something that we're all trying to live here. And that's what will change the world around us. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we close out this series, we've gone full circle. We started in Eden, and we know someday we're going to end in a, in a garden city. And God, um, you've asked us before that happens to be an alternate city here and now. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know how to live in the world but not be of the world, to truly be a different city, a different citizen, to be attractive to those who are searching for hope and, and eternal life. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would ask you this week what Marsha did. is just bring somebody across our path, God, we can pray for, we can serve, and Lord, we may not be able to share with them the first day, the second day. It may take weeks or months or years of building a relationship. But Lord, would you bring us and keep us burdened for people who need you so that we can show them and speak to them the love of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.